Hey guys, it's Jason. Uh, this past week, we lost a member of the awesome movie year family or listenership or group or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Blair DeWayne was not only a supporter of our podcast and Dave's podcast, Piecing It Together, uh, he was an avid movie fan and an incredible musician, incredible talent. And for me, he was a good friend. I had been writing about him for over a decade in his bands. But beyond that, he also let me film an entire web series at his house because he was a good friend and he believed in art. And the loss is immense and it hurts and it sucks. And I just wanted to dedicate today's episode to Blair. I miss him. I love him. And uh, I appreciate his dark sense of humor and his personality. Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and the substitute host of Big Time Cartoon Circus. (laughs) I feel like you could, Jason. I feel like you you could be a clown. You could definitely... Pull that off. Maybe I got to go to mime school with some of these guys. Uh, you know, there's so many warring factions in this uh, film that it's tough to pick a side. There are, there are. I feel like you might not be as good at being a mime as you would be at being a clown. Oh yeah, yeah. That's just my thought on you, though. I don't know. Maybe I'm underestimating you. Maybe the worst art to do on a podcast is miming. <laughs> Oh, is he my, I, I wasn't even looking at the video. I just wondered why he wasn't speaking. That's great. Way to go, Jason. Yes, this is really, you wonder why there's no podcasts about miming. And this is why, because people just heard some silence and confusion right there. And now they're wondering what the hell is Dave, going on. Dave, Dave was with it. So you know. Yeah, obviously I was looking at my notes and missed the whole deal. But uh, what is happening here? Well, we're talking about mimes and clowns because we are talking about the films of 1992. And we are here at our cult classic episode to talk about Shakes the Clown, the directorial debut, writing and directing debut from Bobcat Goldthwaite, who is also the star as Shakes the Clown. And this movie is something, I guess I could say about it. I mean, it's the true definition of a cult classic, right? You know, uh, I don't think the three of us, spoiler alert, are big fans of it, but it does have a uh, rabid fan base. It does. And I would say I'm a big fan of the fact that this movie exists. I agree. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Bobcat Goldthwait saying, you know what? I'm going to do with my goodwill from like police academy movies. I'm going to make this really fucked up movie about an alcoholic drug using clown that involves murder <laughs> and all sorts of depravity. And that's how I am going to sort of uh, expend my Hollywood capital. And not everyone would do that. And I admire, admire him for that. Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, I would say my main criticism is he didn't go far enough with it. If you're going to go, go all the way out with it. 
I, I guess, I guess. I mean, we can talk about this later, but I think he he continued to push boundaries with his later work and maybe went further with some later films than he did here. But the fact that he went this direction at all, when he was known for something a lot more mainstream and even family friendly, I think is, you have to give him credit. For well, well, two things on that. One, I think you're discounting his persona as a stand-up comedian because he was playing with the form and going pretty far out there as a comedian. So if, yeah, if you only knew him as Officer Zed, sure, maybe that's it. But you have to take this other part into account there, Josh. And then two, a little later in this episode, Josh, I interviewed Bruce Baum, who was one of the rodeo clowns at this and a very uh, well-known comedian. And uh, he, one of the things we talked about is, and he, you know, I had to be honest with him. I said, you know, uh, I'm not going to lie. This isn't my favorite Bobcat movie. But um, he said he gets that a lot. People either love it or hate it. And he's very proud of it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So we have Jason's interview with Bruce Baum, who is one of the clowns in Shakes the Clown. And we are very lucky that he gave us some of his time to come on this episode. But in the meantime, we are going to uh, delve into the reaction to this film uh, when it came out, when it was a big failure. <laughs> not only were critics kind of baffled by it, but it was not a financial success. It grossed only $115,000 on its $1.4 million budget, which is not a huge budget, but that is still not what you want as a box office result. <laughs> it was nominated for Worst Picture at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, which is, I guess, sort of like the Golden Globes to the Razzies Oscars or something like that. Yeah, we've mentioned it a few times on the show. Yeah, the le the less prestigious award show for bad movies, but um, did not win. I think lost to Nothing But Trouble, which is a worthy... Winner. If it's less... Yeah, that movie was very bad, but if it's less prestigious, doesn't that mean that it sucks worse? I... I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know how to parse any of that. It doesn't exist anymore, though. The Razzies outlived it. The Razzies go on. The Stinkers Bad Movie Awards uh, no longer are given out. But thankfully, Shakes the Clown was one of the nominees. Bobcat Goldthwait can have that as a badge of honor. And critics were, like I said, they were kind of baffled by it. They didn't all hate it necessarily, but I think they didn't necessarily know what to make of it. Uh, Roger Ebert, I, I love this about Roger Ebert. I didn't quote this part because I wanted something that was actually about the movie, but he spends like the whole first paragraph of his review talking about how much he hates clowns and how much he <laughs> just doesn't want to be around them or whatever, which is really not what this is about. But in reference to the actual movie, he said, Bobcat Goldthwaite, who wrote, directed, and stars, takes this promising idea and doesn't do much with it. There are some very funny lines scattered here and there in the movie, but Goldthwaite is better at monologues than dialogue and dramatic situations. And so his characters have a tendency to stay put, often at a bar, while saying their lines. He sets up promising situations, such as the hungover drunk at the children's birthday party, and then doesn't know how to make them build and pay off. The rhythm of the movie settles into cutaways from scenes that aren't going anywhere. I think that's fair because you see Shakes at that first birthday party and like he's such an effective clown. And then when he's like kind of, you know, uh, at that next birthday party, you're just seeing a different side of him that you've never seen before. And it's like there's no setup for it. There's no kind of logic to what was already built towards it. So 
Um, I have to agree with Ebert uh, on this clown criticism. <laughs> it does seem like it could be just sort of a series of sketches, although it then has a very serious murder plot, which I had forgotten existed in this movie, that, that suddenly gives it this weird sense of urgency that um, I think is at odds with the idea of it just being a series of weird sketches. Well, I think also, Josh, one thing that uh, why, why it has such a cult following is because they treat alcoholism seriously, right? So that's a big thing there. But to go back to Ebert's point, like, I just felt there were a lot of missed opportunities. Like they're going to a rodeo clown bar and they never go inside the bar. Like I would have loved to have seen what that whole scene is like. And instead it's like, they're talking to bouncers, they get roughed up and they're, and they leave. Like, I feel like there was a lot of, um, you know, like he's saying those setups that don't deliver. Yeah. And I wonder if at least some of those are due to budgetary constraints. I mean, obviously it, this was not a large budgeted film and maybe they didn't have the money for more than one bar full of clowns or whatever. That was so, the thing that broke the budget for him, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they make that one clown bar, the one where all the, the party clowns hang out and they don't have the budget to make a rodeo clown bar except the exterior. So that's, yeah, that uh, clown bar. I love that concept that there's like a bar where all these clowns just hang out when they get off. So, you know, I again, like as a fan of Bobcat, a lot of his other work, I just feel like this one just kind of um, uh, fizzled where the other ones, you know, see the promise all the way through. Right. And I think what Ebert is saying here, too, is that there's a, a fun idea there. And I think so, too, that there's a fun idea, although I kind of wonder on the one hand, it's like, this is a one joke idea and can it carry a feature film? And then on the other hand, maybe you wonder if Bobcat thought that too. And so he's like, we need a murder plot. And then that doesn't seem like the way to go with it either. So I, I but again, points for trying points for coming up with a, a, an idea that could be something and just doesn't quite, doesn't quite get there. So, however, some people are on this movie's wavelength. Um, as you say, it has a cult following now. And even at the time, that it came out. There were some people who just got it or knew that they it was for them. So uh, Mark Savlov in the Austin Chronicle said, as you may have guessed, this is an exceedingly dark comedy. And much of the film's warped humor comes out of situations that in any other film would be pathetic. Shakes is like Tennessee Williams with polka dots and red rubber noses. It's this very sense of a reality just slightly left of center that makes Shakes the Clown work as well as it does. The film lags at times. Some of the gags seem hurried and ill thought out, but for a novice director like Goldthwaite, there are surprisingly few of those rough spots. Hmm. Well, Josh, as, uh, as you know, I thought the most obvious comparison was to Tennessee Williams. So kudos <laughs> right. to you for not going in the opposite me, direction. Was... You know, yeah, Mark, Savlov. Mark Savlov there. You're not yeah. one of those hacks who's comparing it to Ibsen or Eugene O'Neill. You went right for Tennessee Williams. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think, as you said, this does try in its own weird way to take alcoholism seriously. Right. Shakes has a legitimate drinking problem. He has these friends who care about him and want to help him, want him to get better. And spoiler, I guess he ends up at the end of the movie, committing to sobriety and attending an AA meeting and seeming to really understand that he has this serious problem that he needs to address. So within the context of this weird, dark clown comedy, 
there is something serious there that that maybe compares to Tennessee Williams. I don't know. Josh, are you scared of clowns? I'm not scared of clowns. I, I I don't think I find them endearing necessarily. Like Ebert, you know, in that in that bit that I was talking about, he doesn't say that he's scared of clowns. He says he hates them. Like mm. he just like kind of holds them in contempt. He says something about he's like, even as a child, I knew that was just a grown man in makeup who wanted to get close to me or something <laughs> along those lines. And so he really he really has some serious some serious hatred there for clowns. But it doesn't sound like he's afraid of them. So no, I've seen tons of horror movies with scary clowns and they can be scary if you make them scary on purpose, but I don't think they're inherently scary. Mm, there you go. What about you? Are you afraid of clowns? Nah, I'm not afraid of clowns, Josh. <laughs> All right. Well, unless they're, uh, you know, unless they're snakes. There's a snake that's a clown. Who I want no part of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a weird image right there. Like a snake with, with clown makeup on it or something? Ah, stop, Josh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I've given you an image in your mind. That you I can't do it. Make. I can't yeah. do it. So. Okay, well, uh, Chris Hicks in the Deseret News was not a fan what of What is that? All. What is that even? Deseret News is the main daily newspaper in Salt Lake City. So, oh, uh, there you go. Not sure if this is a Mormon critic, but certainly the Mormon culture maybe was not receptive to this film. He he said, Bobcat Goldthwaite has written and directed an intended comedy for himself that is so devoid of laughs, it may just be mistaken for drama. Bad drama. Mm. Like Killer Clowns from Outer Space and the current Batman Returns, Shakes the Clown takes the familiarity we have with clowns as friends of children and laugh-a-minute caricatures and attempts to deflate it with dark humor. But there's nothing particularly inventive or clever about the way Goldthwaite handles his own material. Shakes the Clown is sick, but whether it's a joke is a matter of taste. And this film is about as tasteless as they come. Again, I wish it was more tasteless. <laughs> and I don't think also that it that Bobcat Goldthwait would take tasteless as like an insult here. I think he'd probably wear that with pride that that's what he is aiming for. I was so excited because the first scene is like shakes has a one night stand with a, with a, I'll say a cougar. Right. And it's played by Florence Henderson, Mrs. Brady. And I'm like, yes, this is going to be awesome. Right. Is uh talk about depravity. We're taking Mrs. Brady, America's mom and turning into her, uh, into a, you know, an older lady on the prowl who's just sleeping with clowns. And then I just felt like that's where I wanted the tone to stay. Yeah. And then he gets peed on by a child. So he's certainly pushing boundaries, pushing buttons right there. So you wanted him more sleeping around with older ladies rather than having this like sort of sweet girlfriend who is unusually devoted to him. I like Julie Brown, but she's very wasted in this film. Yeah, she is. And I don't know what they're going for with her character who has this weird like lisp or speech. That, and that's all that I like. That's all. There's like three beats to her. She can't pronounce the uh, R's. She pronounces R's as W's. She wants to be a bowler and she loves shakes. And it's like none of those really kind of deliver on them where they could. So, I mean, no, obviously, I, I guess I guess her love for shakes plays out in the end. But the rest and. You know, they do reference the bowling thing, but I didn't think that really was, you know, worked as well as it could either. So, 
No, and I think this movie creates this whole weird subculture about clowns. And I felt like he was sort of hinting that there was an equally weird subculture around bowling that this the the Julie Brown's character was involved in. But we never really explore that in any way. Um, she just kind of references it occasionally, and it's mainly used as a thing for her to blame Shakes not paying attention to her because he doesn't listen to what she has to say about her bowling efforts or whatever. So missed opportunity. Right. Her best friend's Cappy Griffin and she's in cooking school, but she can't do anything right. And that's like her whole character. Like, oh, I can't make a souffle and I hate shakes. And it just feels like everything was just a surfacey sketch of something that could have gone deeper to me. Right. And it could have been also more sketch like we could have had like a sketch about weird bowling people and a sketch about like a crazy cooking class or something like that. But he does want to tell you this semi-emotional story about Shakes and his recovery and make you care about whether Shakes' girlfriend is going to stay with him and support him and all this stuff. And it just does not. It, it, it really does not work. I don't think that the emotional bond, I don't think that Bobcat Goldthwait and Julie Brown, as talented as they are in some ways, are the people to carry like the emotional bonding of a couple in a film. It just doesn't I'm, work. I mean, again, we've seen him pull these things off in later films and, and um, you know, kind of really cement the relationships between people. So, you know, maybe this was just a, a step he had to take to get there. Right. And I think when he does that, though, he's not the star of those. Films. Sure. Sure. Actually. So that's maybe th- something holding him back. But also, you know, I watched Joyride leading up to this, which is uh, which is good. You should watch it. It's uh, him and Dana Gould. And it's, a uh, you know, kind of those two on the road. And it's like a documentary uh, of just like, hey, we're in the car and we're talking. And then they're telling jokes at like these clubs around, uh, you know, the country. And Bobcat was saying, like, you know, I didn't realize why I was so depressed until I realized it was because I didn't want to be famous. Right. So the reason he went back to behind the scenes stuff was because he just didn't want to do all that stuff that he was doing. You know, he was opening for Nirvana and doing pretty big stuff there. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's got less to do. Maybe this was the only way to get it financed was for him to star in it. Cause you know, we have a, we have a part for Marty fromage in there, which is uh, Robin Williams. What a year, Aladdin and this and toys. This is our third. I mean, you know, so. Yeah, I forgot that he was in this, as you say, uncredited or credited under a pseudonym. But yeah, he's everywhere in this season of Awesome Movie Year. Yeah, this is uh, the year of Robin Williams. But, um, you know, maybe that's what he, you know, and obviously we know they were great friends, but maybe he's like, yeah, give me a, I'll come work for two days. Maybe he couldn't get someone of that level to work to, you know, start. And so maybe he had to. So. Right. No, I think you're right. And the other thing about that is, is the opposite is that at the time, again, he was quite famous. And maybe the way to get this financed is, hey, I'm starring in a movie. I'm the guy from Police Academy. Yes, like, that's, that's what I was that's saying. What the selling point is. Yeah. 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 So not just that I, I thought what you were saying is that he couldn't get somebody more famous to start. No, I'm saying that he was, you know, he was the famous guy at the time. Right. Yes. So. Yes. So. Uh, and sure, he had famous friends, but you know, may, but maybe a famous friend of his wouldn't be able to commit, but he could commit to it, and that's how he got it. You know, all going right. So right, yes, that does seem likely. But I, I, I it makes sense that he has thrived behind the camera, especially as he stepped back from from being in front of it, and that seems like it's it's his strength, and like you said, it's probably what makes him happier and more fulfilled. So that's lovely. Yeah. So 
Uh, Josh, also in 1992, Robin Williams, voice in Fern Gully. Oh, I've seen Fern Gully, I think. I think it's I the last the rainforest. Theater. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw that in the theater, but I yeah. don't think I want to revisit it. Anyway, <laughs> back to Shakes the Clown. Um, speaking of seeing movies in the theater in 1992, Jason, that is a thing that you did? I thought I must have been mistaken. There's no way that, I mean, I would have seen this as a 12-year-old, right? There's no way my mom, well, I guess so, she would have. So I talked to my brother, who was 10 at the time, and I was like, it, I have this recollection of us seeing Shakes the Clown in the theater. And he's like, yeah, that happened. So uh, this did happen. This was the thing that happened. And uh, I was probably pretty excited about it. And I ended up feeling the same way that it just didn't uh, come together the way I had hoped. So so at, at 12, did you because I was going to say, you know, you were you were you were sort of correcting me that Bobcat Goldthwait wasn't just known for the Police Academy movies at this time. He also had this successful stand-up career. But of course, for me at 12 years old, all I knew, I loved the Police Academy movies for some stupid reason. And that was all I knew was he was the guy from Police Academy. So as we've established, I believe in some other episode, I think it was in the Wayne's World episode that you were much more culturally sophisticated than I was. Yeah, that's clear. I'm now, Uh, I'm now also. Were were you a fan or familiar with Bobcat's stand-up at the time, or did you just watch him in Police Academy? I did know. I probably knew him more as a personality than I did as uh, uh, Officer Zed. I had seen like some of the Police Academy stuff, but I, re- I, you know, I think I knew him as just like Bobcat looks like this, wearing leather suits and just uh, you know eye makeup, and I love the stuff that he wore on stage back then. Um, but I didn't really know his jokes. I just knew he was like, you know, uh, a personality the same way that uh, Charles Nelson Riley was. <laughs> Jason, Jason at 12, big fan of Charles Nelson Riley. Sure. Oh, yeah. Makes Those one liners so on match game repeats, they still mm-hmm. hold up. So, mm-hmm. yeah. They do. They do indeed. Well, I did not see this movie in the theater in 1992, nor did I see it for many, many, many years later. But uh, Bobcat Goldthwait was a friend slash sort of associate or whatever of the uh, the people who ran the Cine Vegas Film Festival here and then ended up working with the Las Vegas Film Festival. And so they had brought him in at various times with his later films and just as, as sort of a panelist. And they would always get him to show up because he was always he's a great storyteller and a great presence and a a famous name or whatever. So one year at the Las Vegas Film Festival, maybe it was an anniversary of some kind for this movie. And they showed it at the festival. And I saw it because I thought, well, I've never seen it. I should check it out. And at that time, I hated it. Like I looked at Letterboxd, I gave it one star. And and I I don't really feel that strongly negatively against it now. I, I don't really think like you were saying, Jason, it doesn't work. It's an interesting idea that he just can't pull together. But I, I definitely didn't hate it this time. But for whatever reason, at that festival showing, it just really did not, not only did not do it for me, but just, I don't know, angered me or something like hmm. that. So I was glad to revisit it and feel better about it. So one thing Bruce Baum says in uh, in our interview is he talks about how people just have such strong reactions one way or the other. And I give the movie credit for creating these visceral reactions. People don't seem to feel like in the middle about it. Right. I, I agree with you. And like I said, that's why I feel like I, I'm glad that it exists, even if I didn't particularly enjoy watching it. So, Dave, we've, we've 
flip the, the script here. You're, yeah. you're the one who's inappropriately seeing movies at a young age. Sure. Did you watch this when you were younger? No, I had never seen it. And I feel like in my head, I was kind of combining this and Quick Change as the same movie. And I... I'd never seen either of these two movies, actually. So. Well, Quick Change is great and very, very different other than involving a brief clown. Appearance. Yeah, I thought it was like a dark clown, you know, thriller thing. Quick I'd Change is Bill it. Murray, right? Yeah, Bill yeah, Murray. Th that's the, the only movie that Bill Murray ever directed. Right. co-directed that one and also stars in it. And yeah, he's the, he plays a bank robber and he's disguised as a clown at one point in the beginning, I think. But then. Right, right. Yeah, that is a really good movie, though. Yeah, uh, another uh, cult classic we could have included Bobcat for might have been Hot to Trot, where he plays the voice of a horse, a racehorse. No, see, I looked this up because I think we were talking about it and I, I was confused. Bobcat does not play the horse's voice. He plays the person that the horse talks to. And John Candy plays the horse's voice. Whoa, that's a yeah. switcheroo. But it's still probably bad. I but I, it has I, a cult following. And I confuse that with Let It Ride, which I think was... Our friend Richard Dreyfus as a gambling oh. uh, a horse uh, better. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus does the voice of a horse? No, he just bets on horses. So there's no talking horses in that movie? Not to my knowledge, but um, we've really gotten <laughs> off the rails here. Speaking <laughs> Is of there a clown at we, least? We have indeed. So do you want to mention anything else about the background of this film, Jason? Yeah, Josh, you know, we, uh, we oftentimes uh, talk about, you know, what year this is and just to be clear, I think you and I both have said like this played like for a week or two in 91 to either at a festival or obviously for awards consideration. But we know it from, uh, you know, it's 1992 is the year. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think it even necessarily played for a week. I think it may have just played at a festival or two in late 1991 and was was commercially released in 1992. So, yeah, sometimes that's questionable depending on how you count release dates but yes this is this is a movie when it failed at the box office it was 1992 so that's that's what's important there you right go there. so we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on shakes the cloud Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1992 we are talking about our future cult classic pick, Shakes the Clown. And in a little bit, we'll hear Jason's conversation with Bruce Baum, who is one of the co-stars of this film, plays one of two rodeo clowns who are also drug dealers who get involved in the murder of Shakes the Clown's manager in this fun clown comedy. And uh, man, I love this interview because it really uh, went deep, not just on the movie, but you know, he was such a presence on the stand-up scene. and He knew Robin Williams and Bobcat for so long. He's got some great stories. I think everyone's going to really like that interview. Perfect. Well, I have no great stories. So, <laughs> so Josh, what you have here is a lot of comedians, which I think is, you know, fun that he cast so many guys. Maybe what Adam Sandler's probably second feature film after going overboard, right? And yeah, yeah. And he was he was on SNL at this time, but hadn't done really any movies. Yeah. And you know, you got you got legends like Luanda Page and up and comers like Tom Kenny and uh who was a friend of Bobcats in high school or in elementary school and and also they did a a, a stand-up duo act at one point. And it just kind of um falls flat in that regard too. some of the comedians work, but like, I feel like Tom Kenny as the bad guy is completely 
not cast correctly at all. Like, I don't think his performance holds up and it's not menacing, but it's also not funny. So I think there's a lot of issues beyond just what we were talking. Yeah, I think you're right about Tom Kenny, who is not really known for being a on-camera actor. He's an incredibly successful voice actor, a legend as a voice actor. But you look at his filmography and it's like hundreds and hundreds of voice roles and I think maybe 10 or 12 on-camera roles in his entire career. So yeah, he seems miscast. And, and maybe it was because, like you say, he was Bobcat's friend and this is a limited budget film and Bobcat is casting people that he knows who want to do him a favor or something like that will work for low rates or whatever that might be. But yeah, I think you really hit it there that he's not menacing or scary or dangerous seeming, but he's not funny either, really. Like as a character, I mean, part of his character is that he's not funny, right? That's the whole idea is that he's a crappy clown who's not funny. And that's why all the other clowns resent him because he gets to host this cartoon show, even though he doesn't have the talent that the rest of them have, allegedly. None of them really seem like they're all that talented. Well, Shakes does at that first party, right? But then you don't true, see- True, true. But then that like, you know, promise goes out the window, Josh. All that promise yes. that Shakes showed. Um, well, the idea is that I, at that second party, right, they're forcing him to be sober. And that's right why he can't perform because he can only be great when he's drunk. I, I guess so. But that wasn't really clear in the first half of it. It was that he liked to be drunk. But in that first kids party, it didn't feel like he was too drunk. You know, it was just felt like like you said, he was either hung over maybe or just showed up late because he was, you know, banging Mrs. Brady or whatever. But um, it didn't feel like anything like that. You know, you got these weird uh, things like we talked about the mime situation where the clowns beat up, uh, you know, the mimes and that could have been fun and the rodeo clown rivalry. And it just kind of, and then you have the manager character played by Paul Dooley, who is all over awesome movie year. We've talked about him many times, but um, yeah, 16 Candles. And when else did we talk about? Uh, he's the uh, coach in American Pie. So, oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it just, um, it's just like we said, it doesn't come together. I don't want to keep harping on it. Julie Brown is kind of not utilized as well as she could be. And, you know, that's that's where I'm at on it. I think um, I think what we do see is like Bobcat is whatever he feels or we feel about this movie. He certainly learned from it and was able to make better movies going forward. Right. He did make better movies going forward. And I, I don't know, you know, I should have looked up like, but he's not disowning this film or saying that he doesn't like it necessarily. No, you said they did a special screening of it. I'm just saying me, right. yeah, I look at it as like, hey, even if this this was a failure, which I'm not saying he's saying, uh, even if this didn't come together or we know it was a financial flop, I think you could see there was potential and lessons learned that he was able to utilize going forward. Right. No, I agree. I mean, you can definitely see that there's potential. And I think in the lessons learned, maybe in terms of working on plotting better and on also maybe in terms of realizing that he doesn't need to be the star, um, that he's able to cast other people and he can just write and direct and that might work out better. So, yeah, I mean, it took him a long time to get back to narrative filmmaking. He didn't make another narrative film for 15 years, probably at least in part because this movie had been a flop. But by the time he did that, he certainly was in a better position to make something worthwhile. That was when he made Sleeping Dogs Lie in 2006. And yeah, I, I wish I, I, I mean, like I said, I was glad that I didn't hate this 
as much as I did the first time. I wish I was able to like it more. I feel like this is the kind of movie that because it's kind of out there and dark and off-putting that I I would like in a lot of cases that I would really be into. And the kind of movie that you tell people like, oh my gosh, you have to see this movie. It's so crazy. It's so weird. You've never heard of it, but you got to watch it. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not there. I like the idea of this whole like subculture in this town, the town of Palookaville, the fictional town where there are quite a lot of clowns, more clowns than a town really needs, I think, but that they have this whole subculture with their own bar. And like you said, the rivalry between them and the mimes, it made me think of like vampires and werewolves on uh, what we do in the shadows, where they're like these rival gangs, like West Side Story style or something like that. And they have to fight each other. But every time something comes up that you think that's fun, that's weird, that's amusing. It just doesn't play out in an entertaining way. Yeah, and that's why you're the host of the Not Funny Diarrhea Show, Josh. Which was a line from the movie. It was a line from the movie. I didn't just bring it up, Josh. That I've just forgotten about. No, I thought that was, you were talking about my other podcast. No, No, I mean, like, you know, one thing, you know, at one point they arrest Shakes and in the background you see a cop in the station pointing a gun at the head of a suspect. And then, like, that's funny, but then they just hold it too long. Or... There's the montage of Shakes and his two buddies, and they have this weird, like, very 80s song, Me and the Boys. And, like, that goes for a little way, and then it just doesn't. So, you know, I don't want to harp on it because, um, like I said, I think I'm clear on how I feel. I think you're clear on how we feel. We have this really awesome interview with Bruce Baum that I think we should get to. So, uh, Dave, unless you want to add anything, do we want to just rate this guy? Well, what did you think, Dave? Did you like it? I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys. I mean, there's things about it that I like. There's a few really funny moments. I thought Sandler was surprisingly good for an early role. Like, you know, he kind of shows promise, you know, as somebody who could be a comic actor, you know. Um, but otherwise, yeah, a lot of it just kind of falls flat. I thought this was not. I thought he was just that one very heightened note. And I would actually love to see these two repaired now and see Bobcat direct a movie starring Sandler at this point in time. That would be interesting. And yeah. and I will say as someone who's generally not a fan of Adam Sandler, I also found him more appealing in this movie because he's not sucking up all the energy and making himself the center of attention, which mm. I feel like is is what he he does. You mean when so, he stars in movies that are based well, on characters not, about him? Like <laughs> It's not just that is that it, you know no matter who is the star of a movie, you're not the only, you know, very rarely are you literally the only person in the movie or that there's no there there's no story around you or whatever. And and I just feel like he 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 sucks all that up a lot of the time. And so we hear where he was, I mean, I don't know if subdued is the right word where he's playing this crazy clown or whatever but he's <laughs> he's a supporting character and he plays it as a supporting character right, right i appreciated that but i'm with you jason i think bobcat would be interesting you know one thing that sandler does in his comedies at least is he just kind of hires the same guys to direct them over and over again people who clearly just defer to whatever he wants and so bobcat is more of an auteur i would be interested to see what he would do with adam sandler i mean we're seeing a lot you know between hustle and uncut gems and josh if I may just counter your argument, <laughs> that's a very, 
that is a very, very effective counter argument. I do want to just before you, I want to shout out like the one thing that made me laugh in this movie, which is uh, at one point randomly shakes gets hit by a milk truck and uh, his girlfriend is concerned about if he's okay. And he says he's fine. And the milkman comes out and uh, checks on him. And then the milkman kind of tries to to like hit on Julie something. Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe hit on her or just say something. And she's like, go away, milkman no. scum. Leave me alone, milkman scum is the line. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah. And I love that. Like maybe there was also some sort of subculture of milkmen in this town and they mm. have their own weird uh, rivalry or whatever. And they never come back to it. But I thought that was funny. Those little hints there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I do want to hear, Jason, uh, your conversation with Bruce Baum. Looking forward to that. So let's uh, let's go ahead and rate it. How do you want to rate it? Well, what are we rating out of uh, five? Uh, what, Josh? I don't know. Five uh, murder weapons with shakes the clown engraved on. Well, them, well, those are those are like bowling pins, right? Or uh, yeah, juggling? They're bowling juggling pins. Yeah, juggle. pins. Right. Five yes. murdery yeah. juggling uh, pins. I would. I gave it two. Sorry, don't like it. Uh, I'm very happy that I got to talk to Bruce Baum about it. Yes, I'm with you. I'm going to give it two, which I, like I said, is an upgrade from my last rating. I am happy that it's there. I'm glad that people do appreciate it. It is not for me and it doesn't really work, but I'm going to give it credit with two murdery bowling pins. <laughs> Dave, how would you rate this? I actually went two and a half. Um, I, I think I'm just giving it a little extra credit because I like that something this crazy exists, you know, even if right. it didn't all work. So. Right. I feel like that's maybe been a theme with a couple things this season, at least with like Man Bites Dog and maybe this, that, it. That's it. But <laughs> crazy movies that you have to appreciate that someone actually made the movie. Yes. And and that's always a cool thing to me. So uh, we'll come back in a moment then and hear Jason's chat with Bruce Baum. Right, we're back here on Awesome Movie Year. Very special guest as we talk about Shakes the Clown, one of the stars, one of the rodeo clowns himself. And uh, a, a, as a comedian, I want you to know how much I appreciate this guy and used to see him on TV all the time. And just uh, thank you for laying down so many tracks that we're able to follow him. Mr. Bruce Baum is here. How are you, Bruce? Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm doing great. You guys look good. Everybody's doing fine. We're all coming out of whatever we just had. Or going into a climate apocalypse, as we <laughs> were talking we about before God on the air. So, so uh, you know, we're talking about Shakes the Clown here. And I was watching some of your comedy yesterday. And obviously, uh, as I had mentioned, you were, you were just all over TV during my childhood, I would say, Bruce. And I was wondering uh, the birth of your relationship with Bobcat because you guys were kind of doing the clubs at the same time and also really playing with the form, you know, you kind of incorporate music and props and, you know, Bobcat was always playing with the form. Is that kind of how you guys bonded? Well, we, we, he was up in San Francisco and I used to play San Francisco so often that people thought I was from San Francisco. So we kind of knew each other from the scene and mutual friends there. And then, uh, he started, I guess, moved down here. Uh, we knew each other also from the Alex Bennett show. Uh, big DJ uh, in the morning back in uh, San Francisco before that, New York. And uh, yeah, then he had the auditions for Shakes the Clown and pretty much filled it with uh, 
a plethora of uh, people that that was really their first feature film. I think it was Adam Sandler's first film. People like Blake Clark, myself, uh, Tom Kenny, who went on to become uh, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. So it's become a comedic archaeological dig. That that's fair. But was that your first film too? Uh, no, I probably did some other films that I, you know, it was the first film that I was proud of. How about that? Oh, great. And then, so speaking of that, you, you're talking about the auditions. Did you know about this concept beforehand? Uh, only because my, you know, agent had called in and said, Bob, why don't you come and read for this part? And I don't think I got the part that I read for. I, I think what Bob was doing, and I'm speaking for me now, is that uh, he had people come in and read and kind of got a sense of how directable and, and the, their range. And if they weren't right for the part that uh, he brought them in for, maybe plug them into a different part. Do you remember what part you did read for? Man, I don't. I don't. But when I got the call, uh, hey, you know, here's the script and you're Ty the Rodeo Clown. Uh I went, okay. And it was a blast shooting it because aside from the script, there was plenty of room to uh, ad lib and stuff. So talking about that, what, what about when you first kind of like read the script or kind of learned about the concept? Because it's such a wild, crazy movie. What did you think? Well, you know, you can read a script two different ways. I can hand you a script and you can read it Jer a la Jerry Lewis and, you, and someone else might read it very Woody Allen-esque, you know, so uh, it's pretty much your interpretation. Knowing Bob, I just knew it was going to be in left field or at least straddle the foul pole. And so I read it that way, you know, because you could read it goofy or you could read it that you're playing in this surreal world and playing it straight, you know. I think that kind of comedy f feel feels more like comedy. I hate it. And they do this on several commercials now, so I'm not knocking any one person. But they'll they'll do a joke and they'll go, get it? Yeah, that ruins it. So I think that's what some films do is with, with the comedy. You can play it broad for silliness sake, and then you can do broad for you don't know what you're doing sake. Right. You want to play the honesty of the emotion in the character. That's where the humor should come from not like shining a light on a punchline per se right committing to the joke and letting people savor it with a burst of flavor there you go so you were talking about um there was room for improvisation and experimentation uh did you guys do a lot of that on set i wouldn't say a lot uh, bob gave everybody clear reins you know after he did it after he got what he wanted you know, to go ahead and, and try, you know, whether it's a different read or something else. We didn't sit there and go through 60 takes, you know, it was pretty much. So, yeah, I think a lot of the humor came from that and came from having the freedom of knowing that no one was going to yell at you if you did. And, <laughs> you know, with this as his first feature, could you have seen the path he was going to take, you know, he's made some great movies since then. 
huge director for TV and comedy specials. Did you yeah. think this would be the, the path forward for him? Well, I, I know that, you know, being able to direct a feature film is a stepping stone. So he delivered. So he got to do more. And uh, Bob's pretty much always, he's always stayed true to himself in the projects he's chosen and done. So it's always uh, admirable when you see an artist, whether it's music or comedy or anything, that stays true to their what they want to do. So this is, um, we're talking about the movies of 1992 during this season. And there was an actor in this film, Marty Fromage, uh, you know, who I don't know what happened to him, but he kind of looks like this guy, Robin Williams, who was having just a huge year in 1992. Did you have a relationship with Robin? Oh, yeah. I met Robin the same week uh, my wife and I kind of hooked up. This was before. Matter of fact, Robin's in my student films when I was a grad student at UCLA. Robin, Dave Letterman. Uh, a lot of guys were in my student films because we were all playing the comedy store. Back then, there was like 40 of us, you know. Now there's 40 on any given night in any city, 40 times over. But, uh, yeah, there was a week I was part of a comedy team. This, so it had to be 77, between 76 and 78. And... Uh, Mitzi Shore called. We were playing in San Diego at one of the first comedy clubs. And she said, there's a guy coming down from San Francisco. He's going to audition next week at the store. Can he do some guest sets? Sure. He came down, stayed in the condo. We, we hung out all week. He killed in the club. And then the following week, he auditioned at the comedy store. Uh, and then someone put him on a rocket. And the rest is history. There you go. Do you still, uh, is there anywhere we could see these uh, student films you did? Because those sound fascinating. Well, you know, I'm gonna, I've am i started airing some of that. I've always shot stuff on my own. I green light myself, whether someone green lights me or not. So I've taken the stuff that uh, I own and I put it on YouTube on a station called, it's uh, Personal Stash, meaning it's the stuff that I own. I will put that up. What I do have up now, I did a piece years ago with, called Clown Away. And it's got Gary Shandling. And the clowns are George Carlin, Bob Saget, Bill Kirkenbauer, Jeremy Kramer. And so I run that. And then I run it again with everybody labeled. Because so you, you can't tell who's who in a clown outfit. And Gary Shandling is the guy who has clowns in his backyard and needs Clown Away. So that, but that's a personal stash. So yeah, I will put up the Robin stuff, but I have been putting up some of that student stuff with Robin and Dave Letterman and, and et cetera. What a, what an amazing time to have come up and be a part of really just building the modern world of stand up comedy, man. You know, I've always said it was kind of, we were dancing in magic and didn't know it. Because back then, you know, the Pinnacle was doing the Tonight Show and maybe getting some guest spots here and there. And then they started using comics to front the sitcoms. And that changed everything. But yeah, if you go down the Las Vegas Strip now, you know, a great majority of the headliners are the guys that were playing the comedy store back in the late 70s, early 80s. 
And yeah, it was a magical time. Everybody, you knew every comic. I've, I, you know, a couple of years ago, they did a survey and it came out that comics were the most depressed profession. Usually dentists are. And I say that's, that's a compliment because when I started out, we weren't even a profession. At least now we're a depressed depression, uh, profession. Yeah, I actually just watched that uh, documentary that Bobcat did with uh, Dana Gould, where uh, Joyride from a couple of years ago, and they were talking about how uh, maybe like a therapist asked one of them, have you ever felt suicidal? And you said, I'm a stand-up comedian. I've been suicidal for the last 30 years of my life, <laughs> right? So Shakes the Clown still to this day, we have it as our cult classic because some people love it admittedly not my favorite bobcat movie and that's totally cool what did you think the reaction was going to be and how it turned out to be when it was released and now having kind of this resurgence as a cult classic well i've i've always enjoyed it you know but i was in the middle of that comedic maelstrom of a lot of guys at you know at different points of their career some guys at the beginning some guys just above the beginning, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. But I'll tell you, I was I was playing in Las Vegas, and it was when Shakes the Clown came out, and Bobcat uh, was on the morning shows because a lot of the clowns were coming down on it, saying it it portrays clowns in a terrible light, and how dare he. And while I was playing at the Riviera, there was a clown convention going on. So downstairs in the grand ballroom were different booths with, you know, funny glasses and noses and honks and <clears throat> guys selling their acts and, you know, performing. So there were clowns everywhere. So I, I told the, uh, the MC, don't say I'm in Shakes the Clown <laughs> because half the audience is going to be clowns and regular, you know, Anyway, so I'm up in my room and an earthquake hits. I think it was the big one that was centered like around Big Bear. But Las Vegas shook. And I wish we had cell phones back then. Because right after they said clowns or they don't use that kind of language, you hear in the hallway, holy shit, fuck, what are we going to do? And I open up my door and there's clowns. Like half of them are still in their suspenders. Some of them are underpants and big clown shoes. And they're all, fuck, shit, what am I going to do? And I've been through enough earthquakes that I just kind of wrote it out. But I thought it was kind of ironic if I could have played that while they were disclaiming that they use that kind of language. Yeah, that's why, that's a wild story. And you're lucky that they didn't uh, say that you were in Shakes the Clown because, you know, we've heard of comedians getting tomatoes thrown at them, but never like a, a cream pie thrown at them on yeah. stage or something like that. So. And I can tell when someone walks up they'll have, that it's going to be about Shakes the Clown because they'll, they'll have a, an expression on their face and go, oh, my, you're in my favorite film. I know, or my least favorite. There's no middle ground on that film. So, but I can tell by the look on the face. Here it comes. <laughs> That's actually like a, a huge compliment to the film that it's creating a visceral reaction one way or the other. No one's right. really in the middle of it, right? Right. You either watch the whole thing or you're out early. 
It sounds like it was just a great experience. It was a, it was like a several week hang. I was right. still doing Comic Strip Live at I was a regular on Comic Strip Live. Every week I either did a video piece or an on stage piece. And I couldn't get I couldn't get them to at that time Adam Sandler wasn't I don't even know if he was on Saturday Night Live at that point. But we pretty much did episodes of Comic Strip Live that were almost like HBO specials because it would be Bobcat and Tom Kinney and Blake Clark. Uh, and I couldn't get Adam Sandler on the show. Hmm. Now look, now look at how it's like Spielberg trying to pitch uh, Close Encounters. Uh, right, or, or you know, Lucas getting all that Star Wars uh, ownership because everyone thought it was too big of a risk. <laughs> Did you think, speaking of Sandler, when when around this time, like, you know, there's that whole um, there's that whole story of uh, of the old Tonight Show booker who said, you know, you're not right for this, but you're going to be a huge star. Did you think that, you know, there was that potential for him to explode like he did? You know, I learned there's a potential for everybody. But, yes, I I I like the guys that are like off off. And so that's why I kept saying, I used to go into the comics replies, you got to put Adam Sandler on. Uh, well, we, we're not crazy about him. I go, forget about you. Look at the crowd. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... One other comic I wanted to mention from the movie who, you know, kind of was uh, one of the uh, trailblazers was LaWanda Page. For people who don't know about what sh she accomplished and how much value she brought as a black female stand-up comedian at that time. Can you speak on that a little bit as, yeah. a, as a black female comedian yourself, Bruce? Yes. I, uh, I, I'm going to stretch, but I can do it. Uh, yeah, I think her and Moms Mabley, you know, uh, really forged a path. Well, more than a path, because Joan Rivers forged a path. These guys, you know, blazed a... Uh, a causeway you know because a lot of times whenever you want something whether it's political or private or you know socio is the big burst isn't going to be widespread you know but it initiates enough people that the path behind them can grow bigger and bigger so they preceded Joan Rivers and stuff, and they probably gave her a path because she seemed tepid, probably. Her and people like Toady Fields probably seemed tepid compared to to LaWanda Page and uh and Moms Mabley. So hmm. so yeah, I think I think what they did is they expanded the mainstream the same way Red Fox and and Richard Pryor. And Lenny, well, Lenny Bruce didn't make that kind of language accessible. Uh, whereas Richard Pryor and George Carlin, and after television success, success, Red Fox made it accessible. It was no longer listening to a record in a back room or something like that. You had said this was the... Um first movie you did that you were proud of. Do you have another movie that you, from your film catalog that you want us recommend for our uh, listeners? Well, let me not recommend this one. <laughs> this, is, this is actually a film. Norm MacDonald told this story 
on the uh, Daily Show. So you can also see him tell the story. But I was, and I also know when people have seen this film, it's called, it was called uh, uh, Candyland with a K. And the expression I get when I know someone's seen that is, hey, you know what? I was in a hotel room last night and I know here comes Candyland. And that's, Norm told the story about back in the day where, where now, by the way, this is a tits and ass film and I was the only one that didn't get naked. So, and I'm still ashamed. But it was one of those films they would show that you'd pay for in a in a hotel room. But it wasn't X-rated. It was just hard R. And it had a play. Sandal Bergman was in it. She was the star. Remember her from Conan and the Barbarian? All right. Okay. So Norm said he was in his room. And he said he was trying to, how am I going to put this? trying to pleasure himself while the free part was still showing. And just as he was ready to complete his pleasure, he goes, Bruce Baum comes on. <laughs> he goes, now I can never call Bruce again. I don't ever want to see him again. And I can't ever watch a hotel movie. Right. So that, but that was a movie I was in where you know, there was there was some nudity except for me. Sadly. But it was called Candyland with a K. I don't know where you can see it, but I But but if you're in a hotel and you're lonely and you want to try to beat the clock before <laughs> Bruce comes on, maybe or at, or at home. <laughs> right. So Bruce, is there anything else you want to plug? We got your YouTube, uh, and I'm excited to check out that stuff and I can't wait to you you know, see what you keep putting up. Anything else? I know you're still acting in a lot of stuff. Anything else you want to plug? Yeah, you know, I I make a hot sauce now that sells online. Uh, it's called Noggin Blast. I grow the peppers myself. I grow them organically, and all the other ingredients are certified organic. And it's at uh, nogginblast.com. Right now available. Well, this could you may be watching this 20 years from now. So we've got flavors like currently ghost pepper with massive garlic and uh, cherry serrano. And then I also have a seasoning that's not too hot, but there's a dehydrated habanero pepper in every one, kind of like a worm of tequila. So you can crumble it if you want to make it even hotter. So that's at nogginblast.com. And then, yeah, personal stash. Uh, season one is up. Each episode is like three minutes, so you can binge watch in two shits. So it's called Personal Stash. <laughs> awesome, Bruce. Well, I appreciate you. Like I said, um, you know, everything you've done in the world of stand-up, and this was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for being on Awesome Movie Year. And uh, make sure everyone get your noggin blast while you watch your personal stash. And you can also get uh, hook up with me at uh, on Instagram at, at Bruce Baum comic. Perfect. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our season on the films of 1992. We have been talking about our future cult classic pick, Shakes the Clown from Bobcat Goldthwait. And you just heard Jason talking to Bruce Baum, who is one of the co-stars of this film. So thanks again to him for giving us some of his time. 
Yeah, not just, I mean, you know, what a, 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 Josh, what a, what a, what a. He's left Jason oh, speechless. Man. No, Josh, he, uh, he dropped so many cool things, not just about the movie, but uh, just about that history with him and Robin Williams and Bobcat. Like, he really set a, a scene at an amazing time for stand-up comedy. So very cool to hear from Bruce. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, part of the legacy of this film is uh, all of these people that Bobcat Goldthwait worked with and continued to work with on his later films. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I think it uh, took a while for him to return as a director of a narrative film, in part because Shakes the Clown was not a huge success. He continued working as an actor, as a stand-up comedian, doing a lot of voice acting as well, which he still does. Um, but it wasn't until 2006 that he made his next film as a, his next narrative film as a director with Sleeping Dogs Lie. And Jason, you were talking earlier about thinking that this movie doesn't go far enough, but certainly later Bobcat films go pretty far, I would think. <laughs> yeah, and I think Sleeping Dogs Lie and World's Greatest Dad, especially World's Greatest Dad, execute those to the highest levels we've seen from Bobcat. Do you want to tell everyone what the plot is if they haven't seen Sleeping Dogs Lie, Josh? Yeah, the plot <laughs> is that a woman has had sex with her dog in, in the past, and her, is it boyfriend or fiance? Yeah, it's not current. Right, though. right. It's something she did yeah. once and she's not exactly proud of it, but she tells her boyfriend or he finds out somehow and it-, it Yeah, it, he just says, it, she just says it like, yeah, you know, it was a thing I did. It was college, right? right? And then it's like him <laughs> dealing with it and everything like that. So- Yeah. Did you ever hear that uh, urban legend, Josh? When you were a kid, when I grew up in Jersey, there was always an urban legend about the girl who was horny- and she thought she was alone. And so she put uh, peanut butter on her genitals and she walked the dog downstairs. And then all of her friends and family were there to throw a surprise <laughs> party for her. I've not, <laughs> it's a great Jersey urban legend. I've not heard that as an urban legend. But of course, people have, have had sex with their dogs. Like, it's a real thing. It's not just an urban legend. It happens. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, world's <laughs> just out there. World's greatest, yeah, world's greatest dad is, uh, you know, Robin Williams. Uh, who's like a failed writer and his son kills himself and writes this suicide note or something and his dad like takes credit for it and becomes like a famous writer out of it and that's a really good movie that is a really good movie and a really good dark performance from robin williams and a movie that i thought about recently related to a movie that dave loved so much called not okay from this year i don't know dave if that movie yeah. came up on your piecing it together episode but certainly a lot of uh similarities i think between those two it did not, but I remember you mentioning it, and yeah, it's a great, uh, that would have been a good one. Yeah, giving Dave some extra puzzle pieces. There yes. you go. After that was God Bless America, which I don't think worked as well. He also did a found footage movie, uh, Willow Creek. But right now it feels like he's really just in a groove as a television director and a director of comedy specials. Uh, he's just doing so many of them. And then, uh, you know, he directed Marin, a, a lot of Marin. He directed a lot of these... Uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, he was the main director there for a while. And he had that show, Misfits and Monsters, which I know you watched, Josh. Yeah, that was a fun show. And that was more than a lot of that TV directing or even the stand-up specials where he just comes in as the director for hire and does a, does a good job, but is not like the main creative force. But Misfits and Monsters was a show that he created and I think probably wrote most, if not all, of the episodes. And it was a good balance between like Willow Creek, his found footage Bigfoot movie, 
which is just a straight up horror movie. It's not a comedy in any way. And and then the comedy stuff he's done, The Misfits and Monsters was kind of a horror comedy mix. And I thought it was fun. It, it, it disappeared without a trace. Nobody seemed to watch it or pay attention to it. But I kind of enjoyed it. And, you know, look, we said this isn't his best performance on camera or behind the camera, but on camera. I mean, I've mentioned tape heads on this show. One Crazy Summer, Scrooged, you know, he's been in a lot of classic 80s films. Yeah, he was a really big star in the 80s. We may forget that because he spent so much of his time behind the scenes since then and hasn't really been interested in being on camera very much. But like I said, I was, for some stupid reason, a huge fan of the Police Academy movies and watched all of them that were around when I was a kid. And I certainly was very familiar with his work in those films and was just as amused by him as by... Uh, you know, Michael Winslow and his weird mouth noises. So. Well, clearly you aren't the only one. They made so many of them. But yes. I do like a lot of Bobcat's stand-up and would recommend that as well, Josh. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I've seen much of his stand-up. I've seen him talk about his films in person. Like we said, he had a relationship with the Cinevegas Film Festival here. I remember going to a screening of Sleeping Dogs Lie where I think, Jason, did you go to that with me? was like a special. I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. And he was there talking about the film. You know, I think I was there too, guys. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we, well, we didn't really know each other back I then. Think we, didn't but, really yeah. know. we didn't know Dave then, but it was destiny yeah. for us to one day yeah. have a podcast and talk about that. I feel like we were possibly three of the eight people who were there or something. I remember it being very, <laughs> very sparsely attended and Bobcat just kind of hanging out in the front of the theater, answering people's questions very graciously, being extremely nice to everyone. Josh, I have a question for you. You know, we, we've mentioned there's a lot of comedians in here who, you know, were maybe got their acting starts. Did this guy, Adam Sandler, go on to do anything afterwards? <laughs> no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Definitely don't look for any Adam Sandler movies. There's nothing for you to see there. You won't find anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's interesting to see Sandler here in this film when he was an, not a nobody. I mean, he was on Saturday Night Live, but he was getting a chance to be in a movie here from veterans like Bobcat Goldthwait, which was something that he was looking for. And like I said before, I think where he's there to serve someone else's film rather than be the main focus. And I like that more, really. Yeah. All right. Uh, Josh, we've talked about how Tom Kenny, you know, was a, a probably as famous a voice actor as there's ever been. SpongeBob, and he plays Heifer on... Uh, Rocco's Modern Life, and uh, which I love that show. Blake Clark was, has been in a lot of those Sandler movies. Uh, he was on Home Improvements and uh, Boy Meets World. And after uh, Jim Barney died, he took over the voice of Slinky the Dog in Toy Story. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Ju Julie Brown, we know, very talented. Bloody Birthday. Uh, and then Earth Girls Are Easy were her big movies in the 80s. And, of course, The Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun. You remember that music video, Josh? I do, yeah. She was a big, like, musical parodist, I guess, uh, for, for a brief yeah. moment. She was, like, the female Weird Al. You remember Medusa, Dare to be Truthful? Yeah. That came out at the same time as this. And right. it, has, uh, it has Bobcat and Tom Kenny. And I haven't seen it since back then, but I loved it in the 90s. That does not surprise you... me at all that Dave was a big fan yeah. of that. So why, why did she stop? Is it like there's only one Weird know. Al and you can't even be the female Weird Al? Because she hasn't put out, I think she put out one album at one point, maybe in 2010 or something. But otherwise, her music 
parody career ended in the 80s. Uh, yeah. I, I remember The Edge, the short-lived um, yes. yeah. sketch comedy show with Wayne Knight, Jennifer Aniston, and Tom Kenny, who was also in that. One of Charlie Kaufman's first gigs, too, as a writer. Wow, that. Yeah, that was something. I might have I might have watched that. I remember that being on Fox at a time when I, on their Sunday nights, when I watched all of their weird short-lived shows like uh, Whoops, the sitcom about the post-apocalypse. <laughs> Um, yeah, I remember. Good, <laughs> yeah. good stuff there. So, yeah, I feel like Julie Brown is like the definition of like everything that she's done in in various parts of her career is, is just cult following after cult following. <laughs> That's what she does. Yeah. Uh, she also does a lot of voice acting these days, and uh, used to be confused with Downtown Julie Brown because they were both on MTV in the eighties. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> speaking of cult followings, Kathy Griffin's had a nice little comeback since her. Uh, you know, she she held up the uh, severed head of Donald Trump and it killed her career. Not the real Donald Trump, just in a picture. Right, and it didn't really even kill her career, just for like a little bit. I don't think she reacted well to that either. She didn't handle that well. Um, but uh, she was good in Search Party in the last season of Search Party. That was nice to see her. And I always like her in that Seinfeld episode where she just talks about Jerry and her act the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I like Kathy Griffin. I think I've seen her do stand-up. I think I've seen her live, possibly. At one point, and I saw her with you. It was not very good. Okay, well there you go. That's why I wasn't sure that I remembered it. But in general, I do enjoy her. She was good on Search Party, and she has a weird energy to her that uh, I appreciate when she shows up in a in a show or a movie. Um, and of course, the last thing I want to mention about the legacy of this film is the REM song "Binky the Doormat," which I felt right. I felt like I was very proud of myself watching this movie when Binky, the character played by Tom Kenny calls himself Binky the Doormat. And I thought, wait a minute, that's that R.E.M. song. That's so cool and obscure. I'm going to mention that on the podcast. And then I went to Wikipedia and, and there it was. So I wasn't nearly right. as good as I thought. Slipknot, right? Yeah, and a slip, Slipknot, also yeah, a slipknot song that has like a sample from this. And, and Binky the Doormat, the R.E.M. song, which is a great R.E.M. song, has nothing to do with this movie. It's just the title and the song is not. A, I was like, maybe they were really singing about Shakes the Clown after all this time and I didn't know it, but that's not. Josh. I'll give you three fun facts, Henry. Right. Three, Josh. Wow. Three. So much fun. Demi Moore was considered for the role of Judy that uh, Julie Brown ended up playing. Well, that would have been a terrible choice. Esquire <laughs> had a list of 75 movies every man should see. What a stupid list. And this was on yeah, it. Yeah, and what a and weird thing to include on that list. <laughs> right. It just the whole thing just sounds this is a very manly film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And then uh, what I had read was. They premiered this movie at a charity event and people walked out, which is lovely. I love that. That That is so. the most likely of those facts. So uh, I could see that. I could see people walking out of this movie now. I don't know. I don't remember if people walked out at that special screening I went to at the film festival, but it's entirely possible. Josh, in summation, uh, as we've said, like we didn't love this, but we can see how people do. And I really think uh, a good step forward for Bobcat. You see, this is the foundation for him to go forward. Yeah. And again, like a few things that we've talked about this season, I'm just glad that it exists, that someone went through and made this film. It's cool that it's out there. So I'm, I'm glad you exist. George. Oh, thank you, Jason. That is weirdly uh, sweet in reference to this alcoholic clown movie. So <laughs> that is Shakes the Clown. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out online and on the social media. Josh, I'm all over the social media. We're all over the social media. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. 
Of course, I have all those new projects, Josh, the trivia party and eat this comedy, doing events in Las Vegas and hopefully beyond. And Josh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Instagram and Facebook, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I didn't mention my website, goforjason.com, because it does not deserve mentioning. Yeah, my website, joshbellhateseverything.com, also doesn't really deserve mentioning, but look at how we mention them both anyway. I am also <laughs> at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, too, where you can also check out uh, Jason's Letterboxd at Go For Jason, right? Yeah, that's a good one, Josh. Yeah. I, vote, I vote for that. Check that out. And thanks again to our guest, Bruce Baum, whose YouTube you can check out for some cool videos and stuff like that. So check out the Bruce Baum YouTube channel. Yeah, I think he's going to start releasing more and more. And uh, hopefully he'll write a book one of these days. Hopefully we'll all write a book one of these days. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, but Bruce more than you, Josh. Yeah, I think no, that's, that's fair. The, that's I'm fair. betting on him. Yeah, yeah. Good, good call. <laughs> <laughs> and you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh. It's the audience choice. And of course, the audience chose basic instinct, you pervs. Well, to be fair, we gave them three perv choices. So it was really it was really a stack deck there. But they did indeed choose basic instinct. So tune in next time for that. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.